0: Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head of all things the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. This is the word of God.
1: What is unique in the ministry of Jesus is that he consistently tells us that he is revealing the Father. That he is claiming that in his very life, you can come to know God. Um his identity as the son of God implies that it's not simply that he has information that if we grasp it, we can live a better life or uh, that he is more upright, or moral than others. Although those things may be true, by saying he's the son, there's an implication that somehow his identity is more than just the person you're seeing, but who he is in relationship to the father. And that relationship matters for Uh, an understanding of true spirituality, true faith. Um, This is unique in what Jesus uh, claims. And it would be like the difference between somebody who reads a biography about an individual and really gets to know about a famous figure and talking to the daughter of that figure. Assuming that figure and the daughter have a healthy relationship, uh, somebody writing a biography will have all sorts of information and no facts that a family member may not even know just because they're, they're not relevant or it's, it's from another time or place, it's from workplace. Uh, but But the relationship of a family member is a kind of knowledge where it's not simply a rehearsal of facts about the person, but, but you can imagine what a person might do in a certain si- situation, or if somebody claims something about the person and you know them, you'd say, that doesn't sound like them. And, and therefore, our pursuit of religion, our pursuit of faith, of spirituality, of life, whatever it is that we're trying to take hold of, Jesus comes with lots of commandments, with lots of principles, with lots of instructions, lots of practices, but he's saying for all of that to make sense, is not simply in in the facts that you could find out, but in the knowledge of God. So we're looking at the book of Ephesians, where Paul is writing to a church, and today's passage, he tells them that he's praying for them, and he wants them to grow in knowledge. His prayer request at the heart of it is that they would increase in their knowledge. But the nature of the knowledge is not simply that he would be empowered as a teacher to give them greater facts about the nature of the faith, but that God himself would be known to them so that they would really mature and grow. So verse 17, you can see that's the heart of his request. Uh, I'm praying for you so that you would have knowledge. And so in talking about this personal knowledge that brings remarkable change to our lives, I want to begin with uh, the connection between wisdom and revelation as it relates to knowledge, uh, the role of the heart in this, and then finally, cosmic integration. The passage we looked at in the last two weeks, uh, the claim is that all things in heaven and earth are joined together in jesus there's a unity there so so this knowledge of god is is leading us towards this integration but where i want to begin is with the connection between wisdom and revelation so in view is our knowledge of god but it's a kind of knowing that that produces wisdom Uh, somebody could be very intelligent could have a good grasp of the facts but how do the facts come together in a way that work rightly and so so you could have a high iq um, but but not really be informed on how to uh relate in a certain situation wisdom uh, involves knowledge it involves being able to process information but it involves a maturity that we need and what we have in view in this passage is for us to gain that kind of knowledge that will mature us and give us wisdom it depends on God to reveal himself, to disclose himself, to make things known to us. So in verse 17, he says that his prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So, so the basic thing he wants is knowledge, but there's a spiritual need. And our translation puts the spirit with a capital S because it's personal, it's it's the Holy Spirit who's actually revealing the Father. So it's not just a, a downloading of, of uh, the latest update, uh, but actually there's a self-disclosure in view. And that revelation is what makes us wise. And it's that it's the kind of story um, that's often behind things that give them meaning that we don't always have so right now. Uh, there's such an enormous amount of information in the world that it seems human beings can't keep up we only a computer is going to be able to process the information it raises questions, what does it mean to be human. Uh, because a, a computer could outpace us but can a computer yet love what is it that makes us distinctly human those those questions are coming up now, uh, but the maturing of being able to take information and, and understand how it changes who you are and, and, and what the world means. That's what Jesus is saying is made possible. And so uh, as an example of just the uh, the difference with the facts and, and how stories play into things, when, when I first married Kathy, uh, and her grandmother was alive. Her grandmother's place was filled with knickknacks, and every piece had a story, and and not the kind of story that would be in most of our homes, which is uh, when I was dating your mom, I had given her this gift for her birthday, and now we have it here. But her stories were somewhat fantastical. There was a there was a rifle that she had that she said was issued to her grandfather in the Civil War. He lived in Indiana, and uh, and that rifle was actually. Uh, you know, as an artifact was in the family because he actually uh, had that. She had a little metal bowl. It was a nice looking bowl. She claimed, <laughs> I think it's true, she was a truthful friend. Paul Revere made it. Paul Revere, the guy in Boston in the 1700s that warned the British are coming. Yeah, he was actually a silversmith, not a political guy. He just happened to have this period, you know, there. Uh, he made that bowl. I can't prove it. Um, But that's the claim. So all of these stories about everything in her place. So when she died, there was this um, thing among the siblings and and the family of what are you gonna claim? And and so, you know, my main thing is the aesthetic. I'm looking around and thinking, most of this I do not want because, anyway, I won't go down that road. Uh, The laughter tempted me to uh, to add three minutes of nothing to the sermon, so I'll just keep going. So so there's the aesthetic. There's also the value. I mean, if there was a certificate proving that bowl belonged to Paul Revere, maybe it would be worth a lot of money. Maybe you know, if we brought it to an auction house, uh, they could you know they would give some high number. But I didn't care about the personal value. To me, actually, that's I think the one thing we took was that little bowl. If you come to my home, I will claim that Paul Revere was was the uh, the maker of that bowl. It was the only thing I remembered. So I was interested in that, not because it was the most beautiful thing. I have no idea if there's any value to it. But but the story behind it made me want it. Um, and then the other things that I thought if only we remembered what the stories behind this were, it was this tragic loss of now they're, they've become things because the person who could explain what the things are is no longer explaining them. We have made so much progress in understanding how the world works and how to get things done But somehow we've lost the sense that there's, there's, there's a meaning behind how the facts of the universe cohere. It's not just that this thing works if you do these things, but that thing in the context of humanity could produce something that causes us to thrive. And without that, uh, no matter what we're learning, no matter what we're doing, we're feeling emptiness. We're increasing hostility. The evidence that we're not living wisely is, is apparent, but we can feel a little bit stuck. Um, the, the claim that, that the revelation of God, which is personal. It's kind of like in a conversation, you could could Google somebody to find facts about them, but if you sit and talk with them and ask them questions, you you come to know them differently. What Paul is saying is Jesus coming means you can begin to relate to God in that way, that you don't need a guru somewhere to give you the principles, but that uh, through praying in the spirit with the Bible open, you could come to know things that will mature you and make you wise. And so it's not a promise that will increase your intelligence but it's also a warning that just because your brain functions in a high-level way, it doesn't mean you're making good choices in life. How do we mature? What kind of absorbing of information shapes our character? It means that our lives have a greater impact. And and this is where faith is needed. So um, if you're sort of a Protestant nerd, you may have noticed that it wasn't random that we opened with a mighty fortress as our God. This Tuesday, not Halloween, sorry to tell you, Reformation Day. That's the occasion. Uh, Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses. I think, I think another 10 theses have been produced you know, in the last 10 years, but uh, the 95 are the ones that we're focusing on. And uh, the claim at that point was faith had been missing and therefore somehow we lost our way. And, and the recentering on faith uh, brought us back into connection with God that, that is meant to bring, to ignite renewal in the church, but it raised all sorts of questions. Well, what is faith? And as reformers tried to articulate what they're talking about because a genuine challenge of, you're making it sound like I could just sit and believe something and then lead a corrupt life and you're blessed by God. And they would say, of course not, because that's not what, what a, a life of believing God looks like. You wouldn't remain in your corruption if you actually believed. So one of the things that, that um you know, Sort of Protestants look back and say, how do we understand the claim that faith is central? Well, there's an informational component. So, so you do need to think to be a Christian. There's, there's a Bible, and it's hard to understand, and there are, are facts about Jesus and claims about who God is. And so we need information, but learning information is not enough. We need to assent to it. We need to acknowledge it's true because you could have the information but just conclude it's faulty or you don't like it. It's not appealing. You need to assent to it. And some people think that's the heart of faith. You know the information and you claim you agree to it. But but what was tried to be uh, highlighted to, to grow deeper is, but but there's a certain trust. There's a resting that comes from that. So it's not simply that you have the information and you say to, you agree to it, but that your life conversion happens when, when that information becomes a new foundation. It's where you're resting. And it's kind of like if you have a, a minor crack in your tooth and your dentist says you need a cap, but I'm going to um, to do a root canal prior to that, just in case there's future problems. And you think a root canal, that sounds unpleasant. I would like to avoid that. And then you do the research and, and maybe you say, this seems to be uh, good, good dental advice. So do you agree that that's good dental advice? Yes. But if you don't make the appointment and actually go, um, you're, you're, the advice is not working in your life in the same way. The, the claim about faith being central is by learning the information, it's not simply that we agree to it, but it becomes the new foundation that we trust it, that, that actually the claim that, that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ challenges us to, to say, well, my instinct is to say, if I could do enough to turn my life around, then I can justify that the, the, tips are, the scales are balanced. And, and the claim is actually you won't. And you actually need to trust that God has the integrity to speak the truth, that if he offers you mercy, you're going to live with that as your foundation. And it it sets a different trajectory for your life. And that's the kind of wisdom that comes from knowing God, that it's not simply that we know about God, but we come to understand him, his character, his goodness. And it allows us to then rest where the spirit is at work in us and that's when we start to mature so in verses 15 and 16 uh, why is he praying for them he seems so excited about the ephesian church he says it's for this reason because i've heard about your faith in the lord jesus and your love towards all the saints that i do not cease to give thanks for you so his prayer is partly praise and thanks and then there's the intercession lord (laughs) the evidence that your spirit is working is there this is remarkable You're not just the God of our people, but the gospel is going across the world. and, And there's evidence. So I'm praying that they would mature. Make yourself more known to them. Grant them wisdom. But what strikes him is he hears about their faith, but he also hears about their love towards the saints. And that's the evidence that the spirit has worked. It's not simply that they say, this is true. We're now Christian. But that by believing in Christ, they're becoming more like Christ. A new community is forming where people love one another. That doesn't come simply by uh, by learning the information, but it comes by coming to know God by the gospel working graciously in us. And so, um, I'll just pause there to say, uh, spiritual life, growth in the Christian life, it involves the Bible because the Bible is where God revealed Himself. So God showed up in history, did things, and appointed witnesses to write them down, and He preserved that for us. So the Bible is there. We need to study it and studying it with academic tools is appropriate. We need to understand the historical context and how the language works. But if we're only doing that, if we're not coming with our hearts open, um, asking God to make himself known to you, to, to work in your life, to reveal himself, then you could become an expert in Christianity, um, but not mature in the faith. And, and what we're, our goal is to be growing in grace. And so there's a connection between revelation and wisdom if we want the knowledge of God to change us. Now I wanna talk second about the role of the heart in this. So we're talking about knowledge, um, and we're talking about change, and uh, in this passage it talks about Jesus being the head of the church, but he prays that our hearts would be enlightened. And it's easy for us to think the head is the place of reason, and the heart is the place of emotion, and while maybe that's true in some ways. That's certainly not what's in view here. And speaking of Jesus as the head of the church, while it would be true to say you need to be a disciple, learn what he teaches and think his thoughts, here head is about his place in the scheme of things, his status, that Jesus has been exalted. So so the head is the top of the body. Jesus, the claim is over all things in heaven and earth. And the heart is the center. So it's not that the head thinks and the heart feels, but the heart pumps life through the body. So there's a concern for our hearts, that the very heart of God would become our heart and that that would bring life to us. So so part of the problem here is that our hearts are darkened. So in verse 18, as he prays for people where the Spirit's working, they're being forgiven, they're being renewed, the prayer is that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And the word in certainly in the original Greek, uh, the word light in it is, is, is part of how it's understood that, that enlightenment means uh, shedding light on. Uh, so it's a new kind of knowledge, a new kind of awareness of the truth. Um, but the assumption is that our hearts are darkened. And if you come next week, you'll see what Paul says about uh, the nature of humanity in Ephesians two. It's like, it's, it's so bad. It's that conversion. It's not simply going from ignorance to knowledge, but it's like going from death to life. Our hearts are in darkness. Uh, and, And another image that we would use, not the image of this passage, but certainly a biblical image, is that our hearts are hardened. That's the situation. Paul is saying you can't simply learn the Christian rules and get your life together. You begin by grace, but now we need to pray that God is going to show himself to you and work in your life so that you're maturing and that maturing is going to bring light to your life, but it's also going to bring softening to your heart so that you actually become alive. That heart that will beat in you, um, will, will be life giving. And so, so one example of, 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 what, what does a hardened heart look like? What does a heart stuck in darkness look like? And just one of, of what could be many examples. I'm going to use the example of contempt. That that there's something about us that there's a negativity, a cynicism, um, but but We're all prone to that, but some of us really get hardened and I'm using contempt as an example because of of in popular reading where maybe some of you have read. uh, One of the more popular relational psychologists today is john Gottman, and and he writes about marriage and his claim is that he can predict uh, divorce fairly accurately and what he says he's looking for is contempt. Um, You put any two human beings together, it's going to be hard. We're all a little bit selfish. We get tired. We're in bad moods. Two great people who are just a little bit different who have to share their lives. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be periods of where you need to be patient, but you could sort of get through it. And it's not simply that you could get through it, but if you're wise, if you're careful, you could actually thrive. It's a relationship that you don't just need to, to survive, but actually has potential for good but it's always gonna have ups and downs, it's gonna have difficulties. And sometimes you just need tools, sometimes you need character. But what Gottman claims is where there's contempt, there's there's nothing you can work with. Uh, Because where there's a conflict, if I am really furious with you and I think you're wrong, but but while you're talking to me, I'm open to the possibility that there might be something truthful in what you're saying. You can bring light into my life. There's hope, this interaction could be meaningful. If I've decided in advance, I look down on you. You are wrong. My job is to destroy you. Nothing you say can really convince me. It creates an impossible scenario. If contempt is there in the relationship, uh, the raw materials for progress are not there. Most of us probably feel like we're fairly open spiritually. We're decent people. Um, uh, maybe you have some issues with religion, uh, but most of us wouldn't feel that we're completely hardened, but the, but the Bible gives a picture of our hearts that there's sufficient darkness that under the right pressures, we would find that um, there's more contempt towards God than we're willing to acknowledge, we're willing to admit, Uh, and it creates what seems to be this impossible situation and and it's kind of like if you're a contemptuous person if that's sort of just the way you're oriented to the world, and you have an annoying coworker, so one hour a week you're in a meeting with that person, it's easy to not have that really grip you and to just, when they share, to, to have a thought that could seem like an ordinary thought, thought. Oh, this person's so dumb, I wish they didn't talk so much at the meetings. And you have other coworkers who could agree with you, not because their hearts are hardened, but because that seems ordinary. Um, but then in, in, in the, the central relationship, when you find that that's actually everything that's said, you think the person's an idiot, there, there's no openness. It's kind of like in our relationship to God, as long as God is there, it's fine. Maybe you hate God, maybe you love God, maybe God's neutral. But it, it's when it matters in life where, where then you need to draw near to God, that then we find actually there's resentment, there's fear, there's all sorts of assumptions about the nature of God that creates the kind of a possibility that God, impossibility that God can't just raise up a prophet to give us the information we need and get us back on track. Jesus comes claiming he, he, he's coming into a situation where something miraculous is needed, a greater power, something that could overcome contempt people. And if you read Luke's gospel, for example, it's, it's not all over the place. Maybe it's, a, it, you know, it's a few places, but look for the word contempt. Um, Herod was excited to meet Jesus and yet treated him with contempt. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you're not familiar with it, you could read it in Luke. Uh, but Jesus sets it up by saying, and here's about a parable about people who are self-righteous and treat other people with contempt. The warning that even religious people with hard hearts don't really know God. And so what needs to happen is uh, in this passage, we find that at the center, the death and resurrection of Jesus, although that's not the emphasis, what's interesting is the ascension is, But in verse 19 to 20, um, Paul says that it's according to the working of his, of God's great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so the next passage is a little bit more about the reality of death. This passage is about the reality of the excellency of Christ, but it assumes the backstory. It's not just that Jesus was raised and ascended, but he was raised from the dead. How did Jesus die? We we killed him. What what measure of contempt does it take for somebody to come and say, I've come to make God known and here are the signs of life in the kingdom. And something in humanity said, this guy needs to go, we hate him. So it's from the dead, the power of humanity uh, in our corrupt hearts to do evil. What we're told is there's a greater power. It's a power that gives life from the dead. So it's not somebody that Jesus was killed by us, but he was raised by God. And that turns things around. If God can raise the dead son who was crucified, he can soften the hard hearts of those who rejected him. And so there's something here about a work God is going to do deep within our hearts that we really uh, need to understand. And, and and the story of the cross, when we look at the cross, what do we see? And maybe some of you look at it historically, we see a fact that happened. This is just what happens in the Roman Empire, the crucified people that seem to be dangerous. Maybe you look at it uh, from a leadership perspective. Maybe if Jesus would have answered questions when Pilate was asking him, he would have gotten off. Um, uh, There's any number of things that you could look that will will pull out a little bit of a sense of, huh, do I really want to follow a guy that failed? Um, Do I really want to get so close to something so controversial? Any of the thoughts that could come to our minds. The New Testament frames what we're supposed to see in the cross. We're supposed to see uh, we, the hard-hearted who continue to reject God, God uh, in the greater power of his grace and love was willing to bear it in order to completely transform us, in order to make forgiveness a possibility, in order to bring the new covenant promises that our hearts of stone would be softened in order that the dead could come to life. The New Testament is shining light on Jesus saying, look there and the spirit would show you what you are to see is not misery, failure, injustice. What you were to see is a remarkable grace of God. And that softens our hearts because it doesn't mean, it, it, it means that Jesus didn't simply die as a fact of history or because there's this amorphous large church out there, but Jesus died for you. Uh, he knows your hard heart. He knows your failings. And yet God's grace is to invite you to come to him even if it's costly for himself, and and it's that where there where Paul is reminding us, um, there's not much we can do. But everything we've done has made things worse. What we need to do is to to receive from God, to trust that God is really this gracious. And what we find is that's actually where renewal begins. When you start to understand the the measure of God's grace, uh, it, it's so enormous, it's so cosmic, that that then it puts a story behind everything. It it, it takes the details of the life you've lived up till now, and it puts it in a context, it puts the current events in a context, it it puts our expectations of a future in a context, and it's a context that says, like it or not, we depend on God, but oh man, God is good. We can trust him. Thank you for Jesus Christ who came to reveal God. We now want the spirit to show us more of Jesus so that that we would grow in that knowledge by a spirit of revelation and wisdom. So in verse 16, I remember you in my prayers. I've heard of your faith and love. You need to mature, you need to grow. So I'm gonna pray that God would continue to show himself. In verse 17, the language is that God would give it to you. It's not that now that, that he gave you a second chance, you need to get your life together. It's that you would really need to, to come to know him in his goodness so that you can progress, so that his goodness becomes your goodness. So the last thing I want to talk about is what I'm titling cosmic integration. That word cosmic seemed like a good word on Friday when the outline was do and now it seems a little bit preposterous but there it is i'm sticking with what's printed cosmic integration i'm really just trying to to, dig it i haven't been watching too much star trek in the last couple of months it's uh you know paul saying all things in heaven and earth have been joined together in christ that what he's doing starts in our hearts uh but it's 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 god's plan for the redemption of all things and so our disconnected lives are disconnected people god tries uh, or God does something that brings together what was broken. And so that's, the, that's what I'm intending on talking about here. And here it is worth highlighting something in this passage that we don't talk about enough, um, which is the ascension. So it's, it's right that the death and resurrection of Jesus is, is an essential hinge on where things change. But the ascension seems like this far-off thing that, that the claim here um, is is in verses twenty to twenty two is not just that Jesus was raised from the dead and therefore vindicated the accusations against him were wrong there 's a legal component there 's a life giving component but but he was brought up to the throne to the right hand of the Father above every power uh, it 's quite a claim it 's so It's such a claim that um, it's hard for us to understand. I think it's easier for us to understand. I've done something wrong that requires or that produces suffering. Jesus suffered. I could access that. Jesus over the cosmos seems to be hard for us to grasp. But what Paul is saying is when you come to know God, the God who is here, the God who is with us, but the God who is everywhere, that grand vision of God's grace and what he's doing, it actually takes you in the... In the current challenges of your life and puts them in a context where then you're empowered to face them and so um this ascension the 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 glory the honor the vindication the things that are true of jesus right now if you're in a situation where somebody's slandering you maybe it's it's immediately accessible to know that my reputation is being torn down but god vindicates there's so much here that that has access to to where we're at but it seems so big and what Paul is saying is it is big. So I'm gonna pray that your minds would expand, that you would know more things, but, it, but, it, but it's, a, it's a wisdom, it's a maturing. And so I wanna highlight in this, in this last point the, the three things that, that he names that, that would be helpful for us uh, to mature and to grow in. And in verses 18, 19, his request is for knowledge, but here's how he unfolds it. He says that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance? in the saints and three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And so when we're talking about these things, they're so big and so great, you know, we get primed by our experiences of life. And then we, we do our, our theological thinking out of that, whereas we're actually meant to see things differently. But as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about uh, this thing. I didn't know what to call it. It's called the claw machine. I think that's or that's what some people call it, you know, in arcades or at carnivals, there's this like this glass booth, typically rectangular, and there are all these useless things of, you know, these stuffed animals, but then there's like beats headphones right in the middle. And it's kind of like, oh man, for, for $1, if I could get those $300 headphones and it looks so easy, you just need to operate this little crane, like claw. You press the button, it drops it and it picks it up and then you watch for 10 minutes and like 200 people have tried it and nobody has gotten it but it looks so easy. All you need to do is maneuver this. And it's the pride that makes you think they must be, I must be better than them. And then $10 later, you realize the machine is rigged. And then all of a sudden now you're an advocate against injustice. Uh, That, you know, that experience where we start to think Actually, this is how the world works. I'm promised that if I just reach these accomplishment points, I'll be satisfied. If I hit these markers, these people will love me, all of these things. And it feels like my entire life is running after what seems to be valuable. And yet every time I drop the, uh, the hand, I can't grasp anything. And the conspiracy is we're all separate thinking we're a bunch of losers and why can't we come together and be like, yeah, it doesn't work. There's nothing you could grasp in the world that's all of a sudden going to make your life come together. Uh, the, the, The picture here is God has come down and taken hold of us. It doesn't depend on us. Uh, and therefore, he is going to to bring us a share in these kinds of things, uh, but we're naturally cynical. We think, "Wait a second, the promise is Jesus comes into the world, and God is kind enough to forgive us for every atrocious thing." Yeah, I mean, you need to understand how that works because it's complex. But basically, God is that gracious. It sounds too good to be true. Paul is saying, we well, come to know God if you know His character, if you know the story of Scripture, and if you see what God is doing in your life." then all of a sudden you're going to stop trying to grab all the things that would not give you what you want anyway. And you're going to recognize that if he's taken hold of you, uh, now you have the context to mature. So, um, first the hope to which he has called you helpful for me, I don't know. Um, he doesn't say I'm talking about the hope that's in you because I find that my hope is weak and insufficient. He's not saying you're a person of great hope. He's saying, do you know the hope that is in God? and you're being invited to come closer. It's good for somebody, uh, a hopeless struggler to say, actually, uh, I don't have the hope yet, but I'm invited to have that hope. He wants us to know the hope to which he has called you. God invites you. Come out of your hopeless existence and know his grace, and you will start to have that hope be a foundation, which changes your outlook. Second thing, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this is where it involves our imagination because he's not promising uh, a, a Rolls Royce to us. He's not saying that you'll have the penthouse apartment in the, the building next door. I don't know that any 20 of us in this church could afford the penthouse <laughs> apartment in the building that's being constructed. Uh, the promise is not if you show up here every Sunday, you know, for, for, for two years, you're going to get that. He's talking about a kind of riches that actually satisfy it's, there, There's a kind of value. And the funny thing is we know this as people, and yet, because we can't access the true things, we, we settle for what we can get. And so, uh, some of you may remember uh, an advertising campaign by MasterCard, their priceless campaign. And quite clever for, for a bank that's like, we want you to spend more money on things via our credit card. Uh, how do you create the incentives to do that? And what they actually did in this campaign that's been going on, I think, like 25 years. I, I don't know if they, they're still are uh, doing advertisements. But the idea is is not to promise that with their banking, you'll get more things, but to try to show you what kind of experiences are meaningful so that, so that maybe their hope is that you would spend things uh, via their card for those greater goals. So one of the first, what I think was one of the first commercials is a father taking his son to his first baseball game. And there he is buying the tickets. There he is buying a hot dog. <clears throat> There he is sending his kid to the bathroom so he could buy some beer. I don't think that happened in the commercial, uh, but, but, but what's, what's being portrayed is, is an ordinary thing two people going out, you're buying things, but, but they're trying to show you, actually, it's not about sports and it's not about food, but there's something meaningful here. There's a story here that if this is the nature of that relationship, isn't this a worthy investment in, in that. So they're saying, we're not just trying to sell you tickets. We're trying to sell you. Uh, we're trying to say that, that that you know, there's an access to something deeper that you know. And and therefore, uh, the slogan at the time was, there are many things that money can't buy, but for the rest, there's MasterCard. Kind of an honest take. Fair enough. Yeah, we need things, but you know, we can't be super spiritual for the rest of the things, but they're highlighting, there are things that, that you, money can't buy. And the frank assessment is, we're bank, we can't give you those things. But if you're trying to gain those things maybe we could help you with some of your goals Uh, framing it in a way like that look we could be cynical about their goals but uh, but i but i certainly think it ties into there's there's a reality that there's something deeper there's a way of seeing where, where meaning is in what happens it's not in the tickets it's not in the the outfielder it's not in the outcome of the game but but a father and son showing up that that tells a different story and it's that story that as humanity we're losing and what what Paul is saying is in every generation, we're invited to, to come, to draw near to God, and he's gonna show you that there are things that money can't buy, there are, there's an inheritance that will be given to you, that you know the things on earth won't give you, and yet you need to do something so you pursue the things on earth. Paul is saying actually just trust God, and yeah, you still pursue the things on earth, but you do it not because that's what you serve, because that's your identity, because that's your hope of satisfaction but because you've come to know God and his grace, and that actually can transform everything. And then finally, he talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The Bible introduces God is so powerful that he could shine light into darkness and order chaos. The claim is God in his power exercises that for the good of those who hope in him. And so there's an immeasurable greatness of his power for those who believe. And there is this interesting uh, phrase that he talks about in the future generation, uh, in the future age, as in the present. And that's where faith is required. What we're told is we know where the story is going, that, that Jesus is the head of all things and Jesus is gracious and generous, so trust him and, and you will arrive by his grace. But right now it doesn't appear that everything is aligned that way. And so live in the present based on that future rather than living in the present based on some other Promise of future. And so the power that God has to protect us, to preserve us, to change our hearts, to give us life from the dead, the, the power of the one who, who made all things, who sculpted the, the mountains and filled them with, uh, with uh, rams and animals, uh, that God will exercise his power on behalf, in, in a protective way, on behalf of his people, in a generous way, on behalf of his people. And so um, in conclusion, verses 22 and verses 23, uh, the story here is about Jesus. It's interesting, this passage is about the greatness of Jesus, the next passage is about what God does in us, but, but they're connected because we're told his story is our story. And so uh, the Father puts all things under Jesus' feet, verse 22, giving him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God calls individuals, but he calls us into community. Um, our connection to Christ connects us to one another, that that the relationship is organic. It's now like the relationship with a head and a body. The head is exalted, the head sees all, the head is glorious, but we're, we're now integrated. And the, the word church here really, uh, the Greek word means an assembly, a gathering, people that come together, so we're not meant to take these spiritual things and and, and live uh, lonely lives trying to get our hearts together, but we're to assemble in the presence of God to be a community that believes Jesus Christ and loves one another. And uh, yesterday, i mentioned earlier in the service, we had this uh, one day retreat up in cold spring and we were talking about how do we cultivate life together? And this sermon series in Ephesians is called join together growing together because uh, the presentation in Ephesians is there's a theological reality where where God has done something to to join things together. And now we need to understand the reality of that so we mature and grow. Um, not simply so that together, we help each other grow as individuals, but we're being knit together as a new family, a new community. And so um, yesterday the question, how do we cultivate life together? We didn't answer it, there's not an easy answer because we're in a period where adaptation is needed. The world has changed radically just in the last two years. The pandemic has changed our habits, uh, our experiences. And the question is, what do we need to keep doing? What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to start doing so that we don't feel like a bunch of disconnected, discouraged people, but that we're coming together, trusting in the power and the promises, the riches, the inheritance, the hope of God, and that that's producing life in us so that our being together as a community empowers us to go out into the world. God's gathered people then scatter and bring something of that grace. And, uh, I'm not gonna answer the question for you today. I'm hoping we're gonna spend the next year, if you're part of our church, trying to make progress in answering that. What I wanna commend to you today is to pray, because that's what Paul does. Um, He writes all sorts of specific things, but at the end of the day, he says, you know, the Spirit has worked, God has shown you things. I'm just gonna pray that God shows you more things, that you have a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. And I wonder how many of you pray for your churches. So if you're part of Emmanuel, do you pray for Emmanuel? If you're visiting with us today, do you pray for your church? I would encourage you uh, if if only 25% of us are praying in the next month, that God's Spirit would bring revelation in our community, that we would grow in the knowledge of Him, that we would become wise, uh, I think we will make a lot of progress. So don't feel guilty if in three weeks I remind you and you realize you have not prayed at all. Let's hope somebody is praying, because that's how God gives to those who ask. So be praying. And and, and in particular, um, often uh, when we find a, a particular area of dissatisfaction and we pray for ourselves in that, and it happens in the church. People seem to be nice to everyone but me. I tried to volunteer for this, but it didn't go well. Or whatever the kinds of things that come up. Um, let me encourage you, as you pray for yourself, Lord, give me grace to love people, to love the church. Assume that you're likely not the only one, so, so pray for the church. When <laughs> I showed up at a church that talks about community, but nobody came and talked to me, um, I may not go back, but but Lord bless Emmanuel that they would change, <laughs> that they would really love one another, that your presence would be there. Um, our personal experiences are, are our collective experiences. So so pray for yourself, pray for God's spirit of revelation, but pray for the church. If you're here, pray for our church. If you're uh, at another church, pray for your church. But um, but God will give us this grace, and we can make progress. But it's not going to be our plan. It's going to be God's kindness, and we just have to trust that if we show up and are faithful, He will do it. So. Uh, let me pray for us. Our Father, um, it is hard for some of us to depend, to, to sit and, and hear a message that you just need to give us things. We need to ask, um, you need, we need to spend enough time with you that you will show us the things that we need for wisdom. And uh, Lord, forgive our hard hearts, forgive our, our cynical spirits, for, forgive any um, element of contempt in us and renew our hearts and minds. Help us to be wise, fill us with grace, that we would know this hope, that we would uh, be excited about this inheritance that we have, that we would see the goodness of your power and that that would give us strength uh, to be like Jesus as a member of his body in the world. We pray this in his name, amen.